Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. Lots to discuss today, most notably the NFL postseason. And something I really want to discuss, especially with baseball being on hiatus for God knows how long, as we're probably, we would be, three, four weeks away from pitchers and catchers down in spring training. So, But negotiations still have stalled. We don't know if we're going to have a baseball season this year. But I do want to talk about some of the Baseball Hall of Fame candidates for this year. We'll talk about Novak Djokovic and his deportation from Australia for not being vaccinated. We'll talk about the vaccination situation with Kyrie and KD. And uh, uh, the Montreal Canadiens hiring Kent Hughes as their new GM. Well, let's start, though, with the NFL postseason. Really fun weekend. I, I, I would say highlighted... Definitely highlighted by that Niners-Cowboys game, which I figured was going to be the best game of the weekend, or at least the best game of the Sunday slate, those three games on Sunday. Really, a game that did not disappoint, well, unless you were a Cowboy fan, but as a general football fan, really fun to watch. We started, though, with the Bengals and the Raiders. Bengals beating the Raiders 26-19, first ever playoff game for the Raiders since moving to Las Vegas. Although, again, technically either in Henderson or Paradise, Nevada. I can't remember which one. But the Raiders finally reach the postseason again. They finally reach it with Derek Carr as the starting quarterback. He did not play horribly, I would say. Uh, Bengals win it by a score of 26-19. First playoff victory for the Cincinnati Bengals since the calendar year 1991. That is since the 1990 season. 31 years. That streak comes to an end. It was the longest active drought for an NFL team since their last playoff victory, which now belongs to the Detroit Lions, who last won in the divisional round, I believe against the Dallas Cowboys, in the 91-92 NFL season before losing to what is now the Washington football team in the NFC Championship game. Controver- uh, th- this game was really highlighted, if, at least if you were a Raider fan, it was highlighted by a controversial call on the, on, on the Bengal touchdown from Joe Burrow to Tyler Boyd. So if you didn't see it, um, great play by Joe Burrow as he rolls out of the pocket, gets a foot before, probably about a foot before he reaches the sideline, uh, or the right sideline, fires across his body into the end zone to a wide-open Tyler Boyd for a touchdown. Now, I could tell, I actually could tell in real time that he had not stepped out of bounds. That's what, At least that's what it appeared to me when I was watching the game in real time. And the whistle blew, whistle blew, I don't know, maybe, like less than half a second probably before Tyler Boyd had the ball in his hands in the end zone. And so it's not like the, the play was blown dead or, or the whistle was blown as soon as Burrow threw the ball, this this would not really have impacted the play itself. Boyd was going to make the catch, regardless of whether that whistle blew. Nobody near him. But the big problem was, uh, as uh, this was a, a CBS game, I believe, so I believe it would be 
uh, Gene Steratore, who said this, uh, Gene Steratore came on and said, well, once you blow the whistle, if it's in the middle of play, it should be blown dead. Even if it wouldn't have made a difference, once you blow the whistle, it should be blown dead. Uh, and so the officials, first off, I think actually screwed up by just by blowing the whistle at all. Because this is a microcosm of this, uh, an argument that should be made that officials shouldn't blow plays dead unless they are really sure of what is happening, unless they are really sure that a player is down. Uh, or, For example, if, if the ball comes out, if a fumble takes place, and uh, unless the officials are really sure that it is an incomplete pass or the runner is down or something like that, uh, they really should not blow the whistle because otherwise you are taking, uh, because if you do that, you are taking away possibly a very big play if you are wrong. And the officials blowing the whistle on that play, thinking that Burrow's out of bounds, you take away a big play. You can't, uh, you can't undo it. You can overturn it. Again, there is always that possibility that there will be inconclusive evidence on the on the review, but unless you're really sure, that that's a chance you should be willing to take. And so, Burrow got this ball to the end zone. Ultimately, this, based on the NFL rules, this should have been. Uh, ruled a dead ball. This, this touchdown should not have counted. Not to say the Bengals wouldn't have gotten in anyway. And we can't play revisionist history. But if you're a Raider fan, you're probably making the argument that you know, if this play is blown dead, the Bengals don't get a touchdown, yada, yada, yada. In which case, they get a field goal. In which case, it's 22-19 to 19 as the Raiders march down the field at the end. Uh, at which point, Raiders don't have to keep throwing for the end zone, in which case you go to overtime. And, yeah, that's I guess that's true, but there are so many what-ifs to that, whereas this wasn't a play that ended the game. And ultimately, I think there was some... Some of this was fair for the Bengals because the play itself would not have... The whistle itself would not have mattered would not have changed the play itself. Tyler Boyd made the catch for a touchdown. It wouldn't have made a difference. And then on top of that, the Raiders you know, did not manage the best game. Uh, the Raiders outgained the Bengals uh, in all three facets through passing yards, rushing yards, and total yards. Outgained the Bengals 282 to 225 in the air, 103 to 83 on the ground. 385 to 308 total, but the Bengals managed the game well enough in that the Bengals won the possession battle by nearly four minutes, and they didn't turn the football over while the Raiders turned it over twice. Also, Bengals got three points off turnovers, three points off that first quarter fumble, and the interception closed the game on fourth and goal from the nine. Derek Carr, ultimately, when you throw the ball 54 times in a game, it probably means you are, one, you might not have a lot of faith in your run game. Josh Jacobs got the ball 13 times. 
he could have gotten it a lot more. But the, the Raiders are probably ultimately playing from behind if you're throwing the ball 54 times in a game. Raiders were had given up 20 points in the first half. They scored 13, but they, but they gave up 20 points in the first half, and they were ultimately playing from behind for most of this game. So Raiders are done. Ultimately, a good year for them, all, all things considered. The fact that they had to suffer through Gruden's emails being leaked and having to fire him or him stepping down, that they had to suffer through everything that happened with Henry Ruggs. John Madden dies just after his uh, the documentary came out, just after Christmas. They have to play with Patrick Mahomes in their division again. They have to play with an up-and-coming Chargers team, a Broncos team that actually did pretty well this year, all, thing, uh, all things considered. And the Raiders make the playoffs. And not only that, but they give the Bengals a run for their money in the first round. Raiders with a five seed, only lost in the wild card by a touchdown. Raiders had a good year. Again, you don't win the Super Bowl. In many ways, you can say you didn't have a good year. But the Raiders got to the playoffs. Derek Carr finally got to actually play in a playoff game. Good year for the Raiders. Or at least... So I thought maybe Raiders management didn't think so, or Raiders ownership didn't think so, because Mike Mayock has been fired as the team's general manager. I don't know if maybe they think he didn't upgrade the, the secondary enough. Raiders, the Raiders' biggest problem has been their defense. They have, a, they have a very strong offense. I think their front four is pretty good defensively. But I understand, I guess I understand why the Raiders would make this decision. I would think it has something to do with not improving the secondary, not improving the, the linebacking core, and that's the difference. But I, I don't know where they go from here in terms of a GM. That also leads to, are you going to hire a G? I would think you're going to hire a GM before you hire a head coach. But... First off, I disagree with the decision to fire Mayock. I think he's done a fairly good job going through the pandemic, going through the AB situation, how he was just like verbally abused by AB. Again, he's the one who who signed him, but still, point stands. The change in ownership, the new stadium, Gruden's fire, Gruden's resignation, etc., etc., rugs, all of this. I'll, I'll give Mayock credit for what he did. I disagree with the decision, but the question is, what, where are you going to go with GM? And are you going to hire a GM based on who that person thinks the next head coach is going to be? Because I honestly think, I, I'm pretty sure he's a bit older, but I think Rich Passaccia should probably become the full-time head coach. I think the interim tag should be removed. He took over in, what, October, I think? And help lead this team to the postseason. Coming off the Gruden thing, coming off the Rugs thing, in a very difficult division, very difficult conference, and they got to the playoffs. I think there should be at least an interview for Rich Pasaccia going into this offseason. 
Raiders have a lot of things to be proud of, but I, I guess they think they need some improvements. And so there you go. But Derek Carr, it's nice to see Derek Carr finally get to the playoffs. Bengals ultimately move on. Joe Burrow in just his second season wins his first playoff game after being knocked out in the middle of the year last year. So credit to the city of Cincinnati. The night game was not <laughs> was not as good as the first game. Uh, Buffalo Bills destroyed the New England Patriots by a score of 47 to 17. A cathartic moment, I would have to think, for the people of Western New York having been dominated time and time again by the New England Patriots for the pretty much for 20 years. Having to watch Tom Brady and Bill Belichick pick apart the Buffalo Bills year after year after year. And yes, the Bills did reach the AFC Championship game last year and the Patriots missed the playoffs. But the Patriots had won, what, I think 11 consecutive AFC East titles? Six Super, six Super Bowls in a span of... 18 seasons, Bills hadn't reached the playoffs between 96 and what, 2016? No, 2017. And believe it or not, the Bills and the Patriots had only played each other one more time in the postseason. They'd never played each other. Uh, the, the Bills had never faced Tom Brady, the, the, the Brady-Belichick era uh, Patriots in the postseason. The only other time they played each other in the playoffs was I think it's I think it was 1963, and this was uh, the AFL was founded in 1960, and the first Super Bowl came at the end of the '66 season. So this was the AFL in the pre-Super Bowl era. This was I believe '63, and the Patriots won. I think this was in uh, Buffalo. That's the only other time they played in the playoffs, and so uh, a cathartic moment. For the people of Western New York, the the people of Buffalo who have suffered for so long, because even if they lose to the Chiefs this weekend, and I suspect they will, even if they lose to the Chiefs this weekend again, this is going to be something where they could say, hey, we beat Bill Belichick in the playoffs. We have a winning record against Bill Belichick in the playoffs, at least as a head coach. Uh, Belichick, of course, being the D.C. for the Giants in that Super Bowl against the Bills, and goodness knows he's coached in Cleveland and uh, and he was a, an assistant for Parcells with the Jets, and he, all over the place. The only thing, the only way this possibly could have been better for the Bills is if Tom Brady actually was still playing for New England. And I will say, I don't know if having Tom Brady play for the Patriots in this game would have made a difference, because Mac Jones did not play poorly. I didn't think. And looking at this, watching this game, Bills dominated on the opening drive. Allen picked apart the New England defense, a very strong New England defense. And then, down 7-0, Patriots get the football. They're, in turn, picking apart the Bills defense. A very, very strong Bills defense that I think may have been the strongest pass defense in the league this year. And they get up to, what, about the 40-yard line, I think, of Buffalo. They get a little, little past midfield. Mac Jones airs one out down the left sideline, and it's if it's underthrown, it's not by much. 
But really, I think more so, this was just an incredible play by Micah Hyde to intercept Jones in the end zone on this deep ball. And that's what turned the game. That was the turning point of the game. Because the Patriots are going down the field, they were at least going to probably get get a field goal on that drive. And maybe a touchdown if, if Hyde doesn't make that play. But instead, he picks him off. Bills march down the field. They go up 14-0 at the end of the first quarter. They're up 27-3 at the half. Patriots can't play catch-up. And it's a it's absolute domination on both sides. I, I will say, Mac Jones did not play that poorly in this game. He had two picks, but there was that one by Hyde, which I think is just an incredible play. And the other one was deflected. Jones, ultimately 24 of 38, 232, two touchdowns, two picks. He got sacked three times. Again, not the most mobile of quarterbacks. You really playing that more on the Patriots' offensive line. Uh, Patriots, in terms of their run game, did not do much. Limited to 89 yards on the ground. Uh, no running back with more than 30 yards uh, rushing. Josh Allen, with an unbelievable game, 21 of 25, 308, five touchdowns, no picks. A perfect passer rating. Uh, I believe 157. I believe that's a perfect passer rating. The the thing that impressed me the most was Allen's, I think this was his, it was either his first or second touchdown, I think, to Dawson, Dawson Knox, who had a great game. Five catches, 89 yards, two touchdowns. It was the, it was either the first or second pass that impressed me and was kind of like the Burrow pass, actually, where Allen's just rolling right, gets near the sideline, kind of just lobs one up to the back of the end zone, and Dawson Knox makes this great uh, backwards diving catch in the back right corner of the end zone uh, for the score. Really, there were a couple of plays in this game that were, uh, there was the play there was that play and then the play in the Cincinnati game that was to me very reminiscent of Montana to Dwight Clark. Uh, Buffalo moves on the Bills Go to face the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm picking Kansas City in this game because, one, they're at home, and two, I think the Kansas City defense has has improved exponentially since last year. And obviously from the Chiefs-Steelers game, I was wondering whether Mahomes was really just a game manager now as opposed to a guy who still had, had that explosive playmaking ability, but obviously he still does. We'll talk about the Chiefs-Steelers game in a little bit. First, we'll talk about the first two games from Sunday. One, Bucks eagles Buccaneers defeat the Eagles 31-15 in the first home game in Tampa. Home, first home playoff game in Tampa since 2008. The Super Bowl last year does not count, as that is officially a neutral site game. And the this game was not as close as the score indicates, really. Was not thirty-one to fifteen, but the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were obviously the better team. They were the better team from the beginning. I think we knew well before this game started that Tampa would win this game. I think it really proved some weaknesses in the Philadelphia Eagles, a team that finished nine and eight in the regular season, and a team that did not beat any teams that would finish over five hundred. Something incredible to think. 
they put up 15 in the fourth quarter, but that was, in many ways, what you would call garbage time points. They were down 31 nothing at the end of the third. Tom Brady in this game, I know I've said Brady really is a game manager. He takes the, for his pretty much his whole career, takes the short passes, takes the checkdowns. And that's what he's done for the majority of his career. But it was especially so in this game. Like the Eagles gave him the short passes in the flat. He was 29 of 37 for 271 and two touchdowns, no picks. It was about nine yards of completion as opposed to an average of 12 for his career in the regular season. He threw the ball way more in the first half. But again, the Eagles were just giving him the short passes, and in turn, that allowed the Buccaneers to control the clock, take a couple of plays to get each first down, increase the length of each drive. And when you consider the Eagles are so predicated on the run, they are not a, not a great, maybe not even a good passing team. They are so predicated on the run that they live on controlling time of possession. And because they kept giving Brady those passes in the flat, especially with uh, no Chris Godwin, obviously no Antonio Brown, the Buccaneers fairly limited in terms of offensive skill position players. I mean, the Eagles didn't really have as much of an excuse to lose this game. They could not cover Mike Evans. Nine catches, 117 yards, and a touchdown. I mean, Evans took up most of the passing game, but that was the one receiver you really had to cover. And then the one other guy you really had to cover was Gronkowski, who had five catches, albeit only 31 yards. But each of these guys scored a touchdown in this game, and that was the biggest issue. Also, no Leonard Fournette, and yet Keyshawn Vaughn and Giovanni Bernard combined for over 100 yards. Eagle defense was okay on the ground, but they ultimately gave Brady just too much space for checkdowns, and they gave too much to Mike Evans. Offense, again, did not help much, 15 points, but you would figure the Eagle defense would be able to take advantage of the number of uh, number of injuries that the Buccaneers had. And ultimately, when you take away the Eagle run game, they are not a very strong team, at least offensively. That whole stat of them not being able to to beat a, a team above 500, that really caught up to them. And they, they, they showed their true colors. The leading rusher in this game for the Eagles was Jalen Hurts. Eight carries, 39 yards. Then Boston Scott set one carry for 34 yards. That was a touchdown. Miles Sanders had less than two and a half yards a carry. Kenneth Gainwell had one carry. Was not a strong game for the Eagles. They have a lot of work to do. They are already saying that Jalen Hurts is the QB for next year. And this honestly could have to do with play calling, but they certainly have a lot of work to do next season if they want to compete with the NFL's best. Uh, just alone there, uh, the NFC East, where uh, the Dallas Cowboys reign supreme, although they did not do so this Sunday. Good transition here as the 49ers defeated the Cowboys 23-17 to 
in Arlington, the only road team to win this past weekend, the Super Wild Card weekend. Now, the Cowboys, regardless of what you might say, the officiating at the end, the Cowboys ultimately threw away this game with turnovers, bad penalties, and honestly some occasionally poor play calling. The Cowboys turned the ball over twice. Dak Prescott fumbled once and was intercepted once. Uh, ultimately, though, the 49ers, you got to say, aside from a few penalties on their end and one very bad pick thrown by Jimmy Garoppolo, the 49ers played a near-perfect game. They managed a near-perfect game. I know, yes, 23 points, you might think, how is that possible? But in terms of just game management and controlling the game itself, not necessarily, you know, we're going to throw up and down the field, we're going to score 57 points, but... They limited the amount of penalties they had, at least in comparison to Dallas. Nine penalties for 58 yards. Dallas with 14 for 89 yards. And they held the ball for nearly 34 minutes. Also, they were dominated pretty thoroughly in terms of passing yardage, 230 to 172 in favor of Dallas. But the 49ers still had... Over 35 more yards than the Cowboys did in total. That's how good their run game was. Uh, they almost had as many rushing yards as they did passing yards. Niners only turned over the ball once. Uh, they won the possession battle, dominated on the ground, 169-77, to and they were up on Dallas 23-7 to through three quarters. This, this has kind of played... This game kind of played into a narrative that Dallas has held in recent years where in the playoffs they kind of tend to play better from behind but just ultimately run out of time. It's what happened with the game with the Packers in the 2016-17 season in the divisional round, the game where Aaron Rodgers had that big roll to his left on third and 20, hit Jared Cook. Remember, the Cowboys were down what, 28 to 17 in the fourth quarter, I think. They play a lot from behind. And that is not that is not a key to successful football. The run game, there was such a disparity between these run games. Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard, maybe the best running back tandem in the league, combined for 16 carries, which I think is low in the first place, but they also combined for only 45 yards on the ground. 16 carries, 45 yards, no touchdowns. Meanwhile, Elijah Mitchell and Devo Samuel. I know Devo Samuel is really a wide receiver, but they use him a lot in the run game. These two guys combined for 37 carries, 168 yards. There's only one more rushing yard for the entire rest of the team, and both of the 49er touchdowns in this game. The Cowboys, look, I, I will say the Cowboys did get some sympathy from me when the umpire kept them from snapping the ball before the end of the game. But Tony Romo, who was doing the game for CBS, really said this best. He, he's right. He said that the umpire must touch the ball 
before the play begins. And if you notice, if you watch that video again, the ball is actually marked about a... The Cowboys try to snap the ball about a half yard ahead of where the official marks it. And that ultimately makes a difference if, you know, let's say we have a Rams-Titans Super Bowl situation where the Cowboys win by a yard. That, that ultimately makes a difference. And, you know, the Cowboys... Ultimately, that's why I say the Cowboys' play calling was occasionally poor, because they were ultimately cutting it close by running the draw play with Dak Prescott instead of throwing to the sideline or just throwing or taking a deep shot to the end zone. If they take that shot, if they throw to the sideline, throw to the end zone, they, pr they probably have time for one more play. But they were really playing fast and loose, at least by Dak not sliding a little sooner. If he had slid after 10 yards, I think Romo said this, if he had slid after 10 yards instead of 20, they'd probably get the snap off. But uh, that that was the issue there. That being said, uh, the officials, I think, may have hurt the Cowboys earlier in the game this is a microcosm of it. It's a smaller play. It doesn't mean as much at the end. But after their successful fake punt, the the official uh, the Cowboys did take a while trying to get to the line of scrimmage, deciding whether they were going to going to keep the punt team on for another you know quote unquote fake, or if they're going to keep anger on at quarterback, and then the. Eventually, the Cowboy offense did come out. The 49er defense, the defense always has the, the right to last substitution to counteract the offensive substitution. But if it goes that late, usually the officials will say, we're going to bump the play clock back up to 25. And you, you might see that sometimes. You'll see a quarterback or a coach, he'll put his uh, palm towards the sky They'll say we're gonna we need to bump it up, we need to bump up the play clock, and that's probably what should have been done at that point. And it's because of that the Cowboys took a delay of game on that play. Did, did five yards ultimately really matter in that game, especially since it wasn't the last play? No, not not really. But the Cowboys do make a fair argument. I also found out today that Dak Prescott apparently complained toward the officials, made some comments toward the officials after the game. I'm not sure exactly what the comments were, but of course they were not in a very friendly nature. Prescott ultimately apologized, and, and a credit to him for that, because the Cowboys, again, you scored 17 points in this game, and 10 of them were in the fourth quarter. So this was, this was ultimately on them. Uh, Sunday night football, Chiefs dominate the Steelers 42-21. Most surprising thing... So the Steelers were the better team for over 20 minutes. They were up 7-0. They did not have a strong offense whatsoever, but their defense looked outstanding and was carrying them. T.J. Watt was great. T.J. Watt, of course, had the fumble return for the touchdown. Also had a, a deflection that led to an interception really proved why he should be, uh, finally, Defensive Player of the Year. And the Steelers had 
We're up 7-0, let's see, after, what, 20 minutes or so? They were the better team for a while, but ultimately they couldn't do anything on offense. And when your offense does nothing, it's only a matter of time before your defense gives out, no matter how good your defense is. And then the Chiefs scored 21 points in a span of what? Eight, nine minutes at the end of the first half. And if you've seen Anchorman, you know, of course, at the end of the, the fight scene, there is a quote, and this game perfectly exemplified that quote. And that is, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand. This game was, like, that quote is so prophetic of this particular game. The Steelers had a 7-0 lead. They were riding high. Obviously, look, obviously their offense wasn't great. We didn't expect their offense to be great. But, wow, did they crumble quickly. Three scores in like eight, nine minutes for Kansas City at the end of the first half. The, the, the biggest thing, I think the thing where you knew it was really over was the Chiefs going 80 yards in the final, like, 39 seconds of the first half. And Mahomes finding Kelsey for a touchdown. That's when you knew this game was over. When a Steeler defense that has been among, one of, if not the best in the NFL this year, collapses that poorly in the final 40 seconds of the first half. Ultimate, I turned off the game after that, honestly. Yeah, I I went to bed at some point in the third quarter. Another big issue for the Steelers offensively, Ben Roethlisberger was not terrible in what we believe to be his final game, 29-44, 215, two touchdowns, no interceptions. Uh, he did fumble once, only got sacked twice, not terrible. But ultimately, the Steelers rely on their run have relied on their run game extensively this year, and they have 56 rushing yards in total. Najee Harris had 12 carries for 29 yards, and they were they were just abysmal on the ground. That was probably their biggest issue for most of this game. And then, of course, Roethlisberger threw 44 passes. They didn't have a choice but to throw down the stretch, with the Chiefs taking that big a lead. And ultimately, yeah, they put, four, well, really they put up 14 points offensively, 21 in total. They put up two touchdowns in the second half. But again, Kansas City's offense just provided an onslaught. Patrick Mahomes with over 400 yards through the air, 30 of 39, five touchdowns, one interception. Even, even Travis Kelsey threw a touchdown in this game. Jarek McKinnon, I will say, even though he only got 12 carries, Jarek McKinnon looked like a huge difference in the Chiefs' run game. An excellent pickup with no Damian Williams, of course, no, no Bell now. Their run game has been a little more concerning. Jarek McKinnon could ultimately be a major factor in the Chiefs' postseason run. 12 carries, 61 yards. He was very elusive in this game from a dangerous uh, 
front front four, front seven for the Steelers. He could be a, a huge complimentary piece against Buffalo and then potentially against either Cincinnati or Tennessee and uh, potentially who wins the whoever wins the NFC for however long this uh, Chiefs run goes. Another fairly embarrassing game, Monday nights. Uh, kind of annoyed by saying there's a Monday night uh, playoff game now. But Rams defeat the Cardinals by a score of 34 to 11 in LA. The Cardinals championship drought, the longest active drought in North American pro sports, will continue for at least another year. But the upside, Matthew Stafford gets his first ever playoff win, finally. One of the all time leading passers. One of the all-time great quarterbacks in his 13th season goes to L.A. and in his first year picks up a playoff victory. He threw for under 210 yards, but the team ran for over 100. The defense was outstanding. Kyler Murray was very underwhelming. Stafford threw two TDs and ran for another in his first career playoff win. Kyler Murray threw two picks, including a pick six which, again, sometimes you need to take a sack, even if, it's, even if it's a safety. Sometimes you just need to take the sack because a sack, if you hold on to the football, is way worse than an interception. Or is way better than an interception. So that little sidearm, underarm throw, kind of three-quarter angle ball that's lobbed up in the air, pick six. Uh, Murray with under 150 passing yards in this game. Cardinals very limited on the ground as well. That's not necessarily their forte. But ultimately just an ugly showing for a Cardinal team that was undefeated for so long and finishes the year at 11-6. I kind of saw this coming. Even with the Rams losing to, losing to the 49ers at home, you could kind of see this coming with the Cardinals winning and losing an important game at home to a, a, a really bad Seahawks team this year to end the regular season. Murray, 19 of 34, 137, no touchdowns, two picks, sacked twice. Cardinals limited to 61 yards on the ground. Just an ugly game for them, really. I will say for myself, I went 5-1 for the weekend. The one game I did not pick correctly was the Niners-Cowboys game. I took Dallas. This weekend, Titans go to, well, Titans host the Bengals in Nashville. Tennessee not historically great at home in the postseason but I think they are a far more well-rounded team and definitely the more experienced team. Not to mention, I I think this is ultimately their time. Remember a couple of years ago, they reached the AFC Championship game, ultimately fell in Kansas City. Last year, they lost to the Ravens in a tight game at home in the wildcard round. And for the first time in... I think 13 years, they are the one seed 
in the American Football Conference. I'm taking the Titans in this one. Packers against the 49ers in Green Bay. Aaron Rodgers is perhaps the MVP this year. Lambeau is maybe the toughest place to play, regardless of talent in maybe not just football, but maybe any sport. And so I, I'm taking the Packers in that one. I, of course, Packers also have at least Aaron Rodgers. It's hard to bet against Aaron Rodgers. The 49ers have been very good against the Packers in the postseason in recent years, but more so with when Colin Kaepernick was a quarterback for the 49ers. Garoppolo, very good, but I'll take Green Bay. I have more faith in Green Bay. I'm just going to go with a clean sweep for the home teams this weekend. I'm taking the Buccaneers over the Rams. I know the Rams won earlier this year, and they have a stout and frightening defense. But I'm taking Tampa. I, I think it's going to be a lot closer than either the Rams-Cardinals game or the Buccaneers-Eagles game. But that game was in L.A. earlier this year. And I think that, that accounts for a bit of a difference. Also, the Rams have faltered more at times. The Bucks, even without a couple of guys, found their groove last week. I'm taking Tampa. And lastly, I said all four home teams. I'm going with Kansas City over Buffalo. Arrowhead, one of the toughest, or, or GEHA field at Arrowhead Stadium. Another one of the toughest places to play for a visiting team. I think it's going to be a lot closer than last year in the AFC Championship game. I think the final in that one was 38-24. to But Kansas City has both assured that they are a better defensive team this year and they have shown after last weekend that they can still throw the ball deep and pick apart a defense very easily by throwing downfield. So that's where I'm going. Take a break, come back, and talk about Baseball Hall of Fame candidates here on Sports in the Waiting Room. And welcome back. Obviously, in January, it should be hot stove time, but everything's pretty much been put on hold in the MLB because negotiations have stalled. Nothing has really happened to push anything forward regarding uh, negotiations between owners and players. We're not sure when spring training is going to start. Again, probably should have start, probably should start, or would be scheduled to start, I would think about like three weeks from now. I think it's always New Year's Day. It's six weeks after New Year's Day as pitchers and catchers, but I don't know. But the one thing we can at least look at right now in terms of baseball is the Baseball Hall of Fame candidacy. Who, who would I argue deserves to get in? So let's start with, and by the way, we're just talking about the Baseball Writers uh, Association ballot, just the, the regular ballot. So debuting on the ballot this year, there are a few guys. There are Carl, Carl Crawford, Prince Fielder, Ryan Howard, Tim Lincecum, Justin Morneau, Joe Nathan, David Ortiz, Jonathan Papelbon, Jake Peavy, A.J. Przinski, Alex Rodriguez, Jimmy Rollins, and Mark Teixeira. And guys returning to the ballot, Kurt Schilling, Omar Vizquel, Andrew Jones, Andy Pettit, Tim Hudson, Barry Bonds, Billy Wagner, Jeff Kent, Mark Burley, Roger Clemens, Todd Helton, Manny Ramirez, Torrey Hunter, 
Scott Rowland, Gary Sheffield, Sammy Sosa, and Bobby Abreu. Now, I am going to just make uh, the argument uh, for or against each of these guys for the Hall of Fame. Now, they're... One of the rules I've heard is pretty much just if, if just go with your first instinct. If a guy's not a Hall of Famer off the top of your head, then you probably shouldn't be in. Just should you know whether he's in or out. Now, a lot of the focus this year is going to be on Bonds, Clemens, and Schilling. Those are all guys in their final year of eligibility on the Baseball Writers of Association Baseball Writers Association of America ballot, and they could theoretically get in from the Veterans Committee. But it's their last possible year they can get in in this main way. So you know, let's start with those guys first. Kurt Schilling, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens. Kurt Schilling led, had the best uh, voting of any returning player to the ballot who did not get in last year with 71.1%. Obviously a very controversial figure off the field. Uh, somewhat because of his political views, but a lot because of his social views. And he has said, and even perhaps uh, said mostly some very controversial, uh, very uh, divisive things that are not baseball-related. But I I've made this argument before. I think Kurt Schilling belongs in the Hall of Fame because although... I may not agree with uh, some of the things that he has said, and uh, there are a lot, a lot of some of the things he has said have been pretty intolerant of certain groups. But some people have tended to overlook things people have done in their past, or athletes have done in their past, and still let them into the Hall of Fame multiple halls of fame. And by that, I do not mean anything that ha has to do with their on-field performance. I I'm not including steroids, but I mean if they have said or done controversial things or, or been accused accused and, and likely did controversial things. You can, a lot of people, there are some people who have gotten around that and still gotten into their respective halls of fame, still gotten honors. And I think based solely on on-field performance, Kurt Schilling belongs in the Hall of Fame. He is he was not an incredible regular season pitcher, but he's one of the greatest postseason pitchers of all time. He was a co-World Series MVP with Randy Johnson in 2001, was an, a very important factor to the Red Sox World Championships team, World Championship team, World Championship teams in 04 and 07 near the end of his career. He also played a very important role for the Phillies and was every definition of an ace for the 93 team that won the National League pennant. Kurt Schilling, to me, belongs in the Hall of Fame. That's that's my opinion. Whether he will get in, I don't know. The truth is, what what is really keeping him out right now, I don't think is his on-field performance. What What is keeping him out is his his off-field attitude, especially since his retirement. But I I think he deserves to get in. Barry Bonds, 61.8%. Now, if Barry Bonds had retired after the 1998 season, first ballot Hall of Famer. Not a doubt in my mind. 
I will agree that prior to that, that for the first twelve years of his career, he was on pace to become one of the greatest all-around players in the history of the game. Great power hitter, great five-tool player, great base stealer, and a phenomenal player. He'd already won three Most Valuable Player awards by the time the 1998 season rolled around, or by the time the 1999 season rolled around. And it is around that time, starting around then, uh, well, of course, 1998 is when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa broke Roger Maris's home run record. And, of course, we found out later that, or, or well, really from McGuire, we found out that year that uh, at least McGuire was taking steroids, and Sosa probably as well. And regardless of what test results you may see for Barry Bonds, he, look, if you've ever seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and I don't mean the Johnny Depp one. Johnny Depp one's not, not Johnny Depp one's not bad, but the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with with Gene Wilder, and you see Violet, Violet Beauregard, and the scene where I believe she eats an everlasting gobstopper. No, I'm sorry, she eats uh, this stick of gum that's supposed to be like a three-course dinner. And the dessert is blueberry pie. And she expands ridiculously like a blueberry, and they, the Oompa Loompas have to roll her around. That's what Barry Bonds became after 1998. Just look at the pictures of Barry Bonds between 1998 and then 2007. Forget 2007, 2002. 2001, 2002. And look what he's gotten back to since his retirement, by the way. Did you see him for the couple of years he was coaching for the Marlins? He looks completely different. Yeah, you know what? First 12 years of his career, Barry Bonds is a Hall of Famer. It's true. The first, I don't know, maybe 13 years of Roger Clemens' career, first ballot Hall of Famer. But the fact is, you can't, uh, at least until the, the Baseball Hall of Fame says so, you can't just eliminate those years from their record and say they are Hall of Famers. Because if you're going to take, if you're going to judge their careers... By Barry Bonds, you're going to judge them from 1986-2007. Roger Clemens, you're going to judge from 1984-2007. Then they don't belong in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, they would have been in if they hadn't taken steroids, but the fact is they did. They betrayed the game of baseball. They betrayed competition. They, uh, Because of that, they manipulated millions of dollars in, in contracts and advertising and, 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 and championships, things like that. And they don't belong in. Moving on, Scott Rowland. Scott Rowland, I think, is going to go up. 50, he's at 50, he was at 52.9%. He was in his fifth year. Look, off the top of my head, I'd probably say he's not a Hall of Famer, but I will say, looking at his stats, he was... He, he's got the stats to maybe be in the Hall of Fame, but kind of borderline. It's tough to say. He played for some good teams with the Cardinals and with the Reds and with the Phillies. A good, a decent power hitter, decent to good power hitter, an excellent fielding third baseman. So he's not going in this year. But I, I mean, the way he's trending, he might go in by the time he's done. Would I put him in the Hall of Fame? 
He's one guy where I think I need to take a more thorough examination, but I'm leaning toward no. Uh, Omar Vizquel. Omar Vizquel had 49.1% last year. That was his fifth year on the ballot. And obviously, well, you may know, Omar Vizquel was accused of domestic violence. I believe it was domestic violence this year. And that will hurt his case. Uh, again, you may disagree with Omar Vizquel as a human being with some of the things he's, he's done, or at least allegedly done, as would I, but look, I'll clarify. I, I've made this argument before. If O.J. Simpson is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and yes, I know O.J. Simpson was declared innocent by a, a jury of his peers in 1995, but even if you think he didn't do it in 1995, he still went to jail in, what, 2009 for stealing his, uh, for, for stealing his old, was it his Heisman, I think? I mean, I mean, Lawrence Taylor, look at Lawrence Taylor and the criminal record he's had. Look at the criminal records a lot of these guys have had. And if you look at his stats... Omar Vizquel, I, I, look, I disagree with, I strongly disagree with domestic violence, of course, but if you look at his stats, he played 24 years. He was a consistent gold glove winner. He won 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. He won 11 gold gloves. 11 gold gloves over 24 years was an integral part to a Cleveland team that was dominant through the mid-90s despite never winning a championship. And he's a guy, to me, I believe belongs in the Hall of Fame. Billy Wagner, 46.4% in his seventh year. This is a guy who I believe goes underrated. It took far too long for Lee Smith to reach the Hall of Fame, and Billy Wagner has a near comparable amount of saves. I think Lee Smith's at 478. I don't want to say Billy Wagner's at 414. Wagner played a pretty key role for a very good Astros team, very good Phillies team, a very good Mets team later in his career. And I, I would argue he actually belongs in. He's not going to get in this year. I can't imagine he's going to get a 30-point bump this year, but I, I would vote him in. Todd Helton is at 44.9% in his fourth year. He's another guy who will probably get a bump but not get in. I argue he should be in. He is not the power-hitting first baseman that people really, you know, would primarily elect on the on the first ballot, but 17-year vet. I think in many ways he should be rewarded for playing his entire year in Colorado, entire career in Colorado. 369 home runs. That's not... Look, that's not... You know, Jim Tomei numbers, but still pretty good. 1,400 RBIs for his career. He averaged, for 162-game season, he averaged 27 homers, 101 RBIs, and he had a 316 batting average for his career. And that's for a Rocky team that really underperformed, I would say. He, he somehow willed, helped will them to the World Series in 2007, but that's, that's been a struggling franchise. He finished in the top 10 in MVP voting three times, won four silver sluggers, three gold gloves, 
and he had a career peak that is that rivals a lot of great players. Between 1999 and 2003, he had five straight years of 100 or more RBIs. Twice, uh, two of those years, he had over 140, and led the league in hits, doubles, RBIs, batting average, on base, slugging, OPS, and total bases in 2000. And also had 30 home runs in each of those five years. Had 40 of them twice, 35 and three of them. And that's a guy who I think you could make a for whom you could make a very good argument. Gary Sheffield again. Gary Sheffield has been strongly rumored to be linked to PEDs. I don't think I don't know if anything's been proven, but it seems very likely. I guess the the rumors run that hot. Um, he's in his eighth year of eligibility. He's at forty point six percent. I can't imagine he's going to get a bump. Uh, I would not vote him in. Andrew Jones is a guy who has had rumors. I mean, it would make a lot of sense considering he also really ballooned into and not, maybe not to a Barry Bonds level, but ballooned over the course of a number of years. I think for Bonds, it happened a lot more quickly. I think that's the difference. Based on his stats, I think he's actually a Hall of Famer. He's got 400 home runs. Excellent defensive center fielder. Very important piece to those 90s Braves. And was pretty good for a a very tough Texas team later on. Well, a Texas team that wasn't great later on, but he had 50 home runs later in his career. I think the the steroid accusations should probably, or steroid rumors, should probably keep him out for now, but I, I think he should stay on the ballot at least. We might have to look more into that. Jeff Kent is a guy who never got steroid accusations, but just has a really touchy relationship with the media. He's in his ninth year, or last year was his ninth year of eligibility, or make it, excuse me, this year is his tenth, ninth year of eligibility. He's at 32.4%, and he honestly is one of the best power-hitting second basemen, actually, of all time. He has 377 home runs for his career. That's very rare for a second baseman. He has over 1,500 RBIs. He was, was a big part of that, a core of a dangerous lineup with, again, that benefited from having Barry Bonds around him, but also J.T. Snow. People forget, actually, Barry Bonds won four consecutive MVPs from 01 through 04, probably on steroids. Uh, Jeff Kent won the first one in 2000. He had 33 homers and 125 RBIs. He hit 334 for the year. That's his career high. He's uh, He had gotten he finished top 10 in MVP voting in 1997, 1998, 2002. Uh, All-star five times, silver slugger four times. The Mets kind of passed on him early on. Spent a little bit of time in Cleveland. Was great with the Giants. Uh, was great with Houston for the two years he was there. Uh, especially in the postseason, actually. he uh, in, in the 4 season, he hit a walk-off three-run homer in the NLCS in Game 5 against the Cardinals that sent them back to St. Louis up three games to two. Although the Cardinals would win the next two. And then pretty... A few pretty good years at the end with the Dodgers there. So uh, Jeff Kent, I, I think, actually should be in the Hall of Fame, but it, it's not because of necessarily because of what he's done off the field or 
because of steroid use, but because of his reputation with the media that he's not in the Hall of Fame already. This is a guy who, based on stats, considering his position, 377 homers, 1,500 RBIs, a 290 batting average over 17 seasons. As a second baseman, you, you might be a first ballot Hall of Famer if you didn't have the relationship with the media that Jeff Kent does. Manny Ramirez, sixth year of eligibility, 28.2%. Again, should not be in the Hall, I would argue, should not be in the Hall of Fame. He, of course, was suspended multiple times. Would have been suspended, I think, it would have been his second or maybe his third suspension had he not retired. Uh, again, remember he tested positive for estrogen with the uh, Dodger or, or a, yeah, estrogen, which I think can be used for some other, uh, I think to play down steroids or something like that. Tested positive early on in his career with the Dodgers. And yeah, he's got over 550 home runs, but a lot of that was not necessarily manufactured by his own doing. At least not naturally. I know early on in his career, that's another guy who, I don't know how early he was taking steroids. I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever if he was taking them in Boston. But he had 165 RBIs in, his, in 1997, I think, in Cleveland which is insane. He didn't, I don't know, he didn't look as bulky then. It's kind of tough to judge, but we know he did take him regardless. So, no. Sammy Sosa, 17% of the ballot last year. He's in his 10th and final year. If they get Bonds, Clemens, and Sosa all off the ballot this year, yeah, I know they could still get in with the Veterans Committee, but if they get those three guys off the ballot this year, it's going to be a major win for you know, kind of baseball purists like myself. Sammy Sosa, I can't possibly imagine, is going to get a, what, a 58-point bump this year. Bonds and Clemens theoretically could get a 13, 14-point bump and get in, but Sosa, it's going to take a lot. I can't imagine he's going to get in. Bonds and Clemens, I think people will at least think of them because they were very, very, they were great before they probably started taking steroids. Andy Pettit, the truth is if Andy Pettit, if Bonds and Clemens are getting consideration that high, Andy Pettit probably also should because he never took steroids. He took HGH, or that we know of, he never took steroids. He took HGH once. Apparently, it was to try to recover from an injury. And although I don't believe, I, I don't believe that, I think that's what keeps him out of the Hall of Fame. Ultimately, besides that, he was one of the great, maybe the best postseason pitcher ever. A great big game pitcher. Had he not left for three years to go home to Houston and play for the Astros, he actually probably would have been the Yankees' all-time leader in wins, surpassing Whitey Ford. I think he's still the all-time leader in playoff victories, and he's definitely the all-time leader in pickoffs. So, I, I, I look, if Bonds and Clemens are at 61 62%, Andy Pettit should be way higher than 13.7. Again, it's also, also only his fourth year. It doesn't, again, it doesn't mean I think he belongs in, but I think there's a bit of a hypocrisy when you vote for Bonds and Clemens and you don't vote for Pettit. Mark Burley, 11% in his second year. That's a guy who I think will make a kind of a steady climb. I don't think he'll get in. I don't think he really deserves to get in. But he did make his mark with the White Sox, a team that did not have a lot of success for a long time. 
was pretty much the ace of the 05 staff that won the World Series for the first time in 88 years, threw a perfect game, significant pitcher, but not really a guy of whom you think is a Hall of Famer. Torrey Hunter, another guy, great defensive outfielder, good power hitter. I think when you think of that Angels team, you think more of, of, of Vlad Guerrero. I, I, 9.5%, I think, is pretty low, but he's only in his second year still. He could make big strides. Bobby Abreu in his third year at 8.7%. Also not a guy I'd think of as a Hall of Famer necessarily, but I think a guy you should probably get more votes. Same goes for Tim Hudson. I think Tim Hudson should get more credit for what he did, not only in Oakland with Barry Zito and Mark Mulder, but what he did in Atlanta as the ace of a staff in uh, at a time in you know a post uh, post Maddox era, a post Glavin era, and like near the end of the Smoltz era. And then winning a championship in San Francisco at the end. Not that he was at his best, but th- there's a guy who I think deserves more votes. I wouldn't put him in, but I think he deserves more votes. Uh, in addition to that, you have the first-year guys. Carl Crawford, career was kind of short. He disappointed a, a lot of people with his time in uh, Boston and L.A. after Tampa. Prince Fielder. A guy who really, I think, would have been in had he been able to play longer, but his career was ultimately cut too short. Same kind of goes for Ryan Howard. Only played, I think, 12, 13 years. Had a great peak. Not really the guy. Tim Lincecum, a guy who kind of declined, split off into that bullpen, wasn't as integral to the later years of the Giants' major success. Kind of really peaked a little before they won their first championship, actually. Justin Morneau, good ball player, but you don't really think of him as a Hall of Famer. Joe Nathan, I don't know if he really recorded enough saves. Papelbon, I think same goes for him, kind of had a shortened career. Jake Peavy, I think is a guy who could get some votes. Przinski, I'm almost surprised that it's his first year on the ballot. Przinski, I don't think so. Alex Rodriguez, look, if you told me Alex Rod- it was Alex Rodriguez between 1994 and 2000, I would have told you his career was too short, but Seattle-era A-Rod is a Hall of Famer, but Seattle-era A-Rod is a Hall of Famer the way Barry Bonds is a Hall of Famer before 1998. They still took steroids, you know, A-Rod, and A-Rod actually got suspended for it. He doesn't belong. Jimmy Rollins, I think, is a guy who should get a lot of votes, but... Career relatively relatively short compared to some others. Mark Teixeira, I'd, I would actually make a, an argument that Mark Teixeira belongs in the Hall of Fame. He has over 400 home runs, and that is... He had a bit of a shorter career. I think he only played 14 seasons. Yeah, he only played 14 years, but in that time he had 409 home runs. Not a great hitter for average. He had 268 for his career, but... Uh, average for 162 game average, 36 homers, 113 RBIs. That's great regardless of position. It's great for a first baseman. Over a thousand runs for his career, and really one of the best defensive first basemen of his generation. With one, two, three, four, five Gold Glove, uh, five Gold Glove awards, helped the Yankees win a championship in 2009. Finished second in MVP voting to Joe Mauer that year. Uh, I, I would make the argument. 
uh, for Mark Teixeira. Hampered by wrist injuries near the end of his career. But uh, great, uh, very underrated player in Texas, where they uh, a team that struggled. A team that was pretty bad for the first few years of his career. Traded to the Braves, was able to get to Anaheim for a half season after the trade deadline, or before the trade deadline in 08, and then played eight years with the Yankees. A guy who I think is underappreciated in the era of you know the core four and then CC Sabathia, and a guy who did some very good things for the Yankees. I'd make the argument for him. There is also one more guy on this list, and that is David Ortiz. Now, David Ortiz, I will say I have never met him, but he just seems like a very likable guy. And I've heard things from, I mentioned before, Ed Lucas. Ed adored Big Poppy as a person. He said lovely things about him. Seems like the nicest guy. Big inspiration to the city of Boston, especially after the marathon bombing. Really did so much for that city off the field. That being said... I'm going to argue he does not belong in the Hall of Fame. Uh, and it's kind of the flip side of Schilling, really, where I think Schilling belongs in, but I don't necessarily think he's a nice guy. Big Poppy, nice guy, but I don't think he belongs in. And it's not because of his it's not because of his stats. His stats on paper are good enough for the Hall of Fame. But he did at least allegedly Test positive for steroids in 2003, I, or at least some sort of uh, some sort of performance-enhancing drug. I know that steroids weren't technically illegal at the time. This was kind of a preliminary thing. It shouldn't really matter. I mean, M- McGuire, McGuire did it beforehand. Sosa did it beforehand. Bonds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Most of these guys were before it was actually illegal. And then if you also look at Ortiz's stats, they get a lot better once he gets to Boston as opposed to his couple of years in Minnesota. He got way better in Boston than he did in Minnesota. And on top of that, I know, I mean, it kind of happens with some guys, you know, you make this argument. I, we talked about this a little bit with, uh, well, Tom Brady's also superhuman, I think, and it's a different sport, but. David Ortiz's numbers at the end of his career in Boston, his final season, improved exponentially from before that. And you don't really, you don't usually see a guy who gets that much better at age, what, 30, 40. At age 40. He had 38 homers and 127 RBIs at age 40. A 315 batting average. Now, could make an argument that he's just that good. But, I mean, you look at his first few years in Minnesota. I mean, his first few years in Minnesota, he played six years with the Twins. Now, some of these were partial seasons, to be fair. But in a in 130 games in 2000, he had 10 home runs. In 89, in 01, he had 18. In 125 games in 2002, he had 20 home runs. 
He had never had more than 75 RBIs in a season, but then his numbers really shoot up, kind of a pun intended, as you move towards his time in Boston. 31 homers, 101 RBIs in his first season. 40 and one, 41 and 139 and 04, 47 and 148 and 05, 54 and 137 and 06, 35 and 117 and 07. They change a lot. His numbers, his numbers shoot up from like like six pretty mediocre years in Minnesota. He was 27 by the time he started to really look good, and. That year was his first year in Boston, and the same year he allegedly tested positive for PEDs. People have talked about um, the Mitchell report and how there was a perhaps a bias by Mitchell, a native of Maine and a Red Sox fan, for keeping for perhaps keeping David Ortiz and Manny Ramirez off that list. I don't know the truth to it. I, I think he probably did it. And I can't prove that, but I I, I hope for, for baseball's sake, I, I don't want to see a precedent being set where they're really going to start letting guys in who probably took steroids. You can, Because Yvonne Rodriguez at least has some pretty serious allegations against him. Nothing ever proven, but he has some pretty serious allegations against him and he's already in. Take a break, come back, and we will... Wrap up the show. A couple more things to talk about. A couple of them pandemic-related or vaccination-related, really. Novak Djokovic deported from Australia for not being vaccinated. And on top of that, he has made the bold move of investing, I believe it's at 80%, in 80% of a, a, drug, of a potential anti-COVID drug that is not a vaccine, but it is something else. Uh, in addition, Kyrie Irving, despite Kevin Durant being out six weeks with a knee injury, says he will still not get vaccinated, meaning he'll still only be able to play on the road, excluding, I believe, excluding the Garden and the Chase Center in San Francisco. Like at these at this point, if you're not going to get it, I I disagree. You have the right not to do so. But for both of these guys, just need to realize that you're really need to under, understand and make sure that you realize you're limiting yourself as an athlete. Because if you're Kyrie, you're eliminating half your season, maybe more. And then if you're Djokovic, you're eliminating one of four majors. I don't know what exactly the situation is in France for the French Open, for Wimbledon, or for uh, or, or for the U.S. Open, but it obviously limits your ability to compete. And it, if it's not something that's going to seriously hurt you, and for the most part, it doesn't seem like it has really caused anyone much harm. It's it, just get it. That's that's all I can ask, or that that's all we as sports fans can ask. Speaking of a fan base that's 
well, this is a fan base that's probably uh, had their troubles alleviated a bit here. The Canadiens fire uh, hire uh, former agent Kent Hughes as a as their new general manager with a five year deal. Look, I can tell you if you're a Montreal fan, just from watching the Mets here in the, the New York area, hire Brody Van Wagenen, a former agent. I can tell you, beware that this did not work for them. That being said, I, I did not realize there is actually a history of former agents working out, uh, former agents working out successfully as general managers or as executives in this league. For example, former Colorado Avalanche GM and two-time Cup winner Pierre Lacroix, uh, Brian Burke, an NHL lifer, uh, Dean Lombardi of the Kings, Peter Chiarelli of the Bruins, Ray Shiro, who is currently the Devils GM and was the Penguins GM for a long time, was very successful there. These guys, I did not realize, have all been agents at some point. I will say another upside, and this is, I, I don't know how common this is, but he is bilingual. Again, Hughes, not a, a French name exactly. There is not only a, a French portion of Montreal, there is an English-speaking portion of Montreal, large Italian population I know from there. Roberto Luongo hails from there. So that's something I think that's great for a general manager. In general, when you talk about you know how many French-Canadian players there are, at least in this specific case, but there are so many... You know, Finnish players, Swedish players, Russian players, Czech, uh, Austrian, Swiss, etc., etc. Uh, but this is something that is especially good for them in Montreal. So if they if they make a commitment to him for five years, they've got to have some sort of faith in him. That does it for us this week. Thank you so much for your time, and please tune in next time here on Sports in the Waiting Room.